Hello and welcome to another episode of Life After Midnight Strange History Salem Style. As always, I am your host, Kristen Harris, and we are back again. I actually have some special guests with me for this episode, but I'm going to wait a bit to introduce them because I would like to introduce what exactly the subject material is going to be. So for those of you who have already clicked the link, obviously you can see that the episode is called Curious Cases of Things Dead and Gone, Salem's Gothic Literary Past and Present. So before we launch into this, uh, obviously this is an episode that I'm sort of re-recording with uh, our special guest this evening, but um, this is something that I was working on for a while and was used in Visions in the Dark, which was an event that I did with Laurie and Amber from Fun Dead Publications at the Witch House this past October. So uh, I just ruined the surprise, but obviously Laurie and Amber from Fun Dead are here with me for this episode. (laughs) So, um, yes, they are joining me. We are going to be talking about some of the gothic literary past of Salem. Um, But before we do, um, I would like to just introduce you all to Laurie and Amber. They run a publishing company called Fun Dead Publications. And they're both authors and editors for Fun Dead. And they've released, well, now we have to do a recount because now you've released mm-hmm. One Night in Salem. So, how many has it been? Um, so, we have released five books uh, within the last year. Yeah. So, five books total so far. Nice. Um, and we are getting ready to make a major announcement of the next one. Ooh, I can't wait. Um, so,. For our listeners, um, I know that, you know, we were holding off on saying it because we're recording this episode right now, but the announcement has not yet been made. So um, we're going to hold off on that until the end. But I just have a couple of questions for you guys and why I invited you to do this particular episode on gothic literature, because a lot of what you do is horror writing, um, but obviously that is a huge connection with gothic literature. So... Tell me a little bit more about where you draw inspiration from those authors and where you draw inspiration for gothic literature and what it is about gothic literature that has this sort of culture surrounding it. Um, So my original genre that I like to write in um, is actually the gothic genre. Uh, I started by writing my first novel, Walls of Ash, which is a gothic romance, uh, because it was my favorite genre growing up. Uh, While all of my friends were uh, just catching up to me and reading Goosebumps, where I had been reading them for years, I had moved on to reading things like Victoria Holt, Phyllis A. Whitney. Um, I was reading Jane Eyre uh, (laughs) around the same time that everybody else was reading things I love. I still love Goosebumps, but um, those were kind of the thing that inspired me to start writing in the first place. Um, So that eventually led into a transition into horror um, Mm. as a whole. Nice. And um, so I didn't rightly introduce uh, these two ladies from Fun Dead. So who was just speaking on that was author Amber Newberry, who is an editor and obviously author for Fun Dead. And so on that note, Lori Moran. Hello. Hello. Um, So I'm very well. How are (laughs) you? Um, So what about you? What What got you into... I guess my next question is, what got you both into wanting to, to start this project in particular and start Fun Dead and 
Just tell us about all things Fun Dead and what you do and why. <laughs> so the aforementioned Walls of Ash, which was Amber Newberry's self-published novel uh, that was a gothic romance, I edited um, with Amber. And so she already knew my editing capabilities. And then when she decided that she wanted to help others publish their works and started Fun Dead to help authors who had never been published before or who were having trouble getting published or just wanted to try something different, um, when she started Fun Dead, for those people, I came on um, toward the end of Shadows in Salem, which was the first Fun Dead book, to help her edit. And then I've been with Fun Dead ever since. Awesome. And um, you guys have been super busy over the past few months. So not only have you done Visions in the Dark, but you guys were on the lawn of the Witch House uh, with some of your authors and doing signings and just vending. And, and I just, it's event after event for you guys. So is there anything... Um, to that like why why i mean i know that you have a huge community involvement here in salem and i guess my question is can we expect anything else coming up i know you just did a high tea at um which city wicks uh tell me more about that because i did not get to go to that um it was sold out so yeah so we did a gothic high tea um which took place at which city wicks downtown one of our absolute most favorite places who we actually are working on a collaboration with at the moment um we had reached out to them about the possibility of hosting a kind of really dark tea party we wanted to take the whole gothic ideals um and the idea of like dead things dead flowers um and have a tea party with horror readings um and initially i thought the idea of having something that really didn't go together and putting them together like elegance and beauty and then horror i wanted to do that and put the two together and make something really outrageous um and that's kind of what ended up happening we had a pretty outrageous night (laughs) (laughs) so um for, for those of you who don't know, and I, and I don't think I ever mentioned this, the first time I came into contact with Funded was attending their Women in Horror event that they did in the month of February last year. Uh, so can we expect that there is going to be a reprisal of that? Because that was really awesome. Um, I'm actually already in the planning stages of doing a Women in Horror night again. February is actually Women in Horror month. Right. Um, and the whole idea is to just kind of shine a light on women working in a darker genre in a place that you know has previously been dominated by men like so many other things. Um, it's to kind of call attention to women who are filmmakers in the horror genre, women who are writers in the horror genre, artists, and the list goes on and on. Um, So I really wanted to tap into that because Salem has its own little pool of horror writers and people working in that genre who just happen to be women. Um, So I think it was really important for us to make sure we made a note of that and brought it to the forefront during Women in Horror Month in Salem. That's awesome. Um, So on that note, Speaking of women, and especially women when it comes to gothic horror writing, uh, there seems to be just this theme overall of women in horror, whether they are authors or they are the subject matter of gothic horror stories. Um, And there's also a connection between Salem and gothic literature, as we probably all know. And I don't know if any of you know who are listening, but Salem actually has a very storied past and connection with gothic literature. So Salem always had that connection with the darker things. And and again, that's what motivated me to do Visions in the Dark. And 
what motivates probably Amber and Laurie and a lot of their authors who write fiction about Salem is to just sort of keep that connection alive and keep that going. Um, so I know that recently you just released uh, in September, September 29th was the release date or was it the 30th? September 30th was the release date um, of One Night in Salem, which was all short stories that were based in Salem on Halloween night. And they were from all different decades. So this was spanning from 17th century up to the present. And um, in those stories, it was really neat because you see a lot of historical research going into those and a lot of things being brought to the surface, but used in this new way, in this new art form to sort of continue that tradition of viewing the darker sides of Salem for all from all angles and viewing how they still are a huge part of our culture. So uh, I thank you for that because I read all those stories and they were awesome. So well, thank you for reading it. Yeah, and um, if anyone is interested, of course, you can visit the website fundedpublications.com and they, they sell all of their work on there. And if you are local... They sell it at places like Wicked Good Books, uh, Witch City Wicks, some at the Witch House here in Salem, Cabot Street Books in Beverly, anywhere else that I'm missing? or uh, Black Veil Tattoo in Beverly and Jolie Tico, they have our poetry anthology. Nice, yeah. So, the, I mean, obviously, you guys are around, and that's awesome. Um, and the reason I bring all of that up and the reason I sort of brought up One Night in Salem is because there has always been this sort of connection with gothic literature. So some of the biggest names in gothic horror writing that you can imagine all have this connection with Salem. So, of course, the most obvious one is Nathaniel Hawthorne. So on that note, I'm going to get into what exactly the subject matter of this episode is, is Salem's gothic literary past and present. So let's get into the past a little bit. So obviously there is Nathaniel Hawthorne. Now, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote arguably one of the best ghost stories that I think was ever written, and that is The House of the Seven Gables. You can still visit The House of Seven Gables today. It is a tourist attraction, and of course they talk about Nathaniel Hawthorne's connection to the house and supposedly where he got his inspiration for that. And also, it's a little bit of an interest for me because there seems to be this rumor, there's a lot of things in Salem, and I'm sure you guys know about this too, there are certain rumors about different figures in Salem that just seem to never die. Um, one of them being that Nathaniel Hawthorne added the W to his name later in his life to disassociate himself from his three times great-grandfather, who was Colonel John Hawthorne, who was a witchcraft trials judge during the 1692 witchcraft trials. So, um... I'm a tour guide. I'm also a historian. One of the things I like to tell people is that Nathaniel Hawthorne did anything but disassociate himself with the darker history of Salem. In fact, he seemed to have relished in that, and he used it in several of his works. So, uh, for example, obviously, is The House of the Seven Gables. Now, this is a ghost story. However, rather dramatically, in the beginning of, of the novel, you see this man named Colonel Pynchon accuse a man by the name of Matthew Mall of the crime of witchcraft. Matthew Mall is eventually executed. However, on the gallows, he looks at Colonel Pinchon and he says, God will give you blood to drink. So this is sort of that quintessential, very dramatic. Delicious. Yes, very dramatic, sort of gothic-y uh, horror sort of uh, caveat here. And then, of course, rather dramatically later on in the novel, Colonel Pinchon is found dead in his study. He has aspirated blood onto his collar, and it looks like he has indeed drank his own blood. And so, obviously, in the, in the novel, there is this sense of this odd curse since the death of Matthew Mall. 
What's really interesting to me about that is that is something that actually, I don't know if you know this, happened during the Salem Witchcraft Trials. Not so much, but the words were used during the Salem Witchcraft Trials. So when a woman named Sarah Good was in jail, one of the first groupings of people that were accused, uh, she was sitting in her cell and a junior reverend by the name of Nicholas Noyes came to see her, apparently, as this goes, and basically asked her to repent to save her soul. Because obviously if you were accused of the crime of witchcraft, you were still guilty, even if you confessed. You were still guilty of the crime. However, what starts to happen during the witchcraft trials is that they are going to keep you around for witness testimony. If you could name other people and if you confessed. Sarah Good, however, is not one of those people. She looks at Nicholas Noyes when he says that to her and she says... I am no more a witch than you are a wizard, and God will give you blood to drink if you send me to die. So, yeah. Um, so, so, we should probably work on bringing that back. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that um, we should maybe work on bringing back is like, you know, obviously that was not an actual curse, and we know none of the people accused or executed during the Salem witchcraft trials were practicing witchcraft by their standards or by ours they were most certainly practicing folk magic but that is another episode entirely um because i'm as amber and laurie know i can sit and talk about that for a really long time so let's not get on that train um however there's this and then there's the scarlet letter where he depicts a puritan woman hester prynne being punished on a scaffold and having to stand by herself to endure this punishment all of these things, Young Goodman Brown, which is a short story of his where he tells the tale of a young Puritan man riding through the woods only to come upon a witch's Sabbath in the middle of the night, um, apparently swear to see the spirit of his mother and all of these sorts of things. So basically, in a nutshell, what I'm getting at is that we know Nathaniel Hawthorne did nothing to disassociate himself from this history. And in fact, he seemed to relish in following the darker sides of Salem's history. So why the W then? What's the W for? Okay, so, yeah, good question. So Laurie just asked what the W is for. From what I estimate, and also from what some Hawthorne scholars estimate, um, actually, I believe it's uh, Dr. Emily Murphy, who works for the Maritime site here in Salem, has done tons of research on um, Hawthorne and... I don't know if she says this in particular, but what I've seen is that basically he added the W to his name because in the 17th century, up until the mid to late 19th century, spelling was actually phonetic. So people would spell things how they heard them. And you see this in the witchcraft trials documents. There are names spelled three, four, five different kinds of ways. And they are all the same person, so they are talking about the same person, but because spelling is phonetic, they're going to write that however they think it sounds. So the same with Hawthorne. Um, I always tell people, kind of jokingly, that my estimation is that Nathaniel Hawthorne, being a bit of a stickler for grammar, um, probably put the W in there because he got tired in later years of people maybe mispronouncing his name in some ways. So that's kind of, I don't know if that's true, but that's the joke I like to tell about it. Um, but we think that that is probably why the W ended up in the name is because spelling becomes more standardized along the way. Um, and, you know, we know that Hawthorne did anything but disassociate himself with his darker history in Salem. Um, he, along with his wife, Sophia, became involved in the spiritualist movement, uh, which in the 19th century is something that people are following uh, to follow these sort of spiritualistic mediums that are said to be able to contact the dead. Um, just to give a totally brief history of that, I swear it's going to be brief because I want to get back to talking about Gothic literature. Um, spiritualism 
in its heyday, kind of started and got its first fame during 1848 uh, with two people called the Fox Sisters, who were apparently communicating with a spirit in their house by a series of knockings and rappings. Um, to fast forward years later, this became popular. More and more people came to see them. They were toured all around. More and more of these spiritualistic mediums pop up. And especially after the Civil War, after mass death, people start to attach to this movement. Uh, they start to want to contact their dead relatives, see if they had gone into the afterlife well and were better off. Uh, because in the Civil War, obviously, you have mass death people being left on battlefields, you don't have that Victorian sense of the good death as they defined it as. So Hawthorne and his wife become enroiled in this movement and he did not entirely believe in it, but he also said that he did not want to discount it. So he's kind of this old curmudgeon. Um, and he actually attends a seance with his wife during his life. He, so when they are in Italy, he goes to a villa with his wife, and uh, two of their friends apparently called a very famous medium to come forward and sort of demonstrate her gifts for Nathaniel Hawthorne and his wife, Sophia. Um, Hawthorne witnessed this. He wrote about it in his journals, uh, obviously said that he did not believe it very much. However, his wife, Sophia, became very enrolled in this, swear, swore to her dying day that she came into contact with several relatives along the way, and so on and so forth. So again... Nathaniel Hawthorne did anything but disassociate himself from Salem's spooky history. But back to Gothic literature, because there are other people that were inspired by Salem's history. One of them being Edgar Allan Poe, of course. So uh, if any of you have read the story, The Telltale Heart, Poe actually got inspiration for this from a murder that happened in Salem, very famous murder uh, that sort of rocked Salem, rocked a lot of the United States. It was talked about all over as far as Rhode Island. People were writing headlines saying that Salem would be forever stained in blood, blood, blood. So again, yes, rather dramatic. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. Why is dramatic. There always the blood, man? <laughs> because it's it's that 19th century. <laughs> they're just so incredibly descriptive and dramatic, and it's really amazing. Um However, in 1830, a man by the name of Captain White is murdered here in Salem um, in a house that still stands here today. So the Gardner Pingree Mansion here in Salem, you can still see that today. Uh, and basically what happened is that there were these two brothers, the Knapp brothers. Um, I'm not going to get too into the murder story, of course, because that is going to be an episode for another time. I would definitely like <laughs> to talk about that. Episode. It's a whole episode in its own. Um, but apparently the Knapp brothers came up with this idea to murder Captain White. One of the Knapp brothers was married to his niece. Apparently they found out that they were going to be written out of the will for the family, which would leave them with almost nothing. Um, so Mary Beckford was Captain White's niece. She was married to J.J. Knapp, and his brother Frank Knapp is who helped him with the murder. So apparently they decide to deal with this in their own way. They hire a man by the name of Richard Crowninshield, uh, they hatch this whole plan in order to murder the captain and get away with it. So they leave a window unlocked in the back of what is now the Gardner Pingree house. JJ Knapp is able to crawl through that window up to the second floor landing, sneaks into the bedroom of Captain White, hits him over the head with a cudgel, stabs him 13 times until he's dead. And then on the evening of April 6, 1830, when this occurs, sneaks back out the window and goes to tell the Knapp brothers that this was completed, who were standing right across the street the entire time. Down the line, obviously, they hire a man by the name of Daniel Webster, 
who is a very well-known defense attorney in New York. So he's hired to prosecute this case, which is different for Daniel Webster. And he argues rather eloquently. Um, they eventually get a confession because when Webster arrives, he knows that something is up with the Knapp brothers, but he can't quite put his finger on it, and he doesn't have enough evidence to really convict them yet. Um, lucky for him, Richard Crowninshield ends up in jail for another petty crime. He has kind of a record for this. And, um, apparently a prisoner who was in jail with him comes forward to Webster and says, when Richard Crowninshield was in jail with me, he bragged about this murder. He said that he murdered Captain White. So Richard Crowninshield is immediately arrested. A few days later, after sitting in his cell, he actually, uh, kills himself in his jail cell in the old Salem jail, which is now Bit Bar. And condos. So uh, we have a history of turning things into condos that probably should not be condos here in Salem. So if any of you are looking for an apartment. Yeah, right. If you're looking for a haunted apartment, um, if you have, you know, $1,800 a month to spare about, you can move into the old jail. And it's right across the street from the train station. So like really convenient commute and then ghosts at your house. Right. It really is. You're right. It's kind of an all around good deal. Um, So basically... He, he hangs himself, and he leaves a confession note and implicates the Nat brothers. They are then arrested. Um, apparently, his motive for killing himself in his jail cell was that his brother, George Crown and Shield, had been an accomplice, had been there with him. And Richard Crown and Shield had this idea that since he killed himself, that his brother could not be implicated, blah, 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 blah. And apparently, he isn't, actually. So, uh, George Crown and Shield actually walks. He walks free, uh, having not really done anything other than be a lookout. However, something needs to be done to ensure that somebody is jailed for this crime. So, Daniel Webster does something quite strange for the time. He argues for conspiracy to murder, and under our laws at this time, even if you are convicted guilty of conspiracy to murder, it's still punishable by death. Because if you are within 300 feet of a crime scene and able to ensure that that comes to its completion, this is called aiding and abetting. If you are close enough to be able to aid and abet, you can be found guilty. So in his closing argument, Daniel Webster turns to the jury and he basically says, never has a crime been committed that is so brutal, so many pints of blood for so many pieces of silver. So he literally equates the Knapp brothers to these greedy mongrels, almost Judas-like in their (laughs) conviction to complete the murder of Captain White. Um, They are found guilty. They are both hanged the same year in Old Salem Jail and they are buried in Howard Street Cemetery right behind it. So they are still here. Even Nathaniel Hawthorne was talking about this. So he was actually writing letters to his cousin, um, basically saying the town begins to grow rather more quiet than it has been since the murder of Mr. White. But I suppose the excitement will revive at the execution of Frank Knapp. So, of course, this is something that everyone is talking about. It reaches so far in newspapers. It's known to a lot of people. And, of course, it sounds kind of familiar. If I backtrack it a little bit for you all... If you think about a story that you may have read where a man thinking he is perfectly sane but is in fact insane is sneaking up outside the bedroom of an old man, waits outside the bedroom to hear that that man is sleeping, only to sneak in and brutally murder him in the middle of the night, then he himself starts to go insane and ends up confessing the whole crime. May sound like a similar story that you've read, and of course I am speaking of The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. <laughs> thump, thump, indeed. Um, so, Poe was actually at West Point at this time. 
But we do know that he followed the papers of Daniel Webster very, very closely. So apparently he researched, and uh, a scholar that writes about Poe basically says that he critically relied on Daniel Webster's summation of the case. So it does stand to that Poe was most likely following the case very closely. Um, and actually the confession at the end of the story comes in fact from inspiration with the fact that J.J. Knapp, after having been in jail and finally cracking, actually writes a full nine-page confession about the conspiracy. So while they were on trial, they actually read this confession, this full nine-page confession, um, and that's probably what ultimately damned them, is that he was so quick to write a confession and think that he was going to get off for this crime, but he didn't. Um, he was executed for it. And, of course, there is the mother of all gothic horror writers, well, father of all, I guess I should say, um, H.P. Lovecraft, who also took inspiration from many places here in Salem. So he uses several locations around New England. There's some in Providence, like the Fleur de Lis studio, which is thought to be used as inspiration for the studio of Henry Anthony Wilcox and Call of the Cthulhu that was written in 1928. There's the Stephen Harris house in Providence, which is thought to be the colonial house that the main character in the story, the shunned house, becomes obsessed with. But there are other locations in Boston and Salem that are definitely thought to be um, used in Lovecraft's most prolific stories as well. Um, so in his story, Pickman's Model, which obviously we've all heard of Pickman here in Salem, there is the Pickman House that is owned by the Peabody Essex Museum today. Um, but we know that Lovecraft very frequently would use not only places, but also names of people in Salem in his stories. Um, and he says in Pickman's Model... God, how that man could paint. There was a study called Subway Accident in which a flock of the vile things were clambering up from some unknown catacomb through a crack in the floor of the Boston Street subway and attacking a crowd of people on the platform. Another showed a dance on Copps Hill among the tombs with the background of today. So in that main story, a man named Thurber visits artist Richard Upton Pickman and views his terrifying works of art depicting chilling graveyard scenes and a ravenous ghoul that appears to be all too real. Pickman's underground studio is located in North End of Boston, which is also the real-world location of Copps Hill Burial Ground, which is mentioned in that story. Um, now, Lovecraft uses a lot of different place names. He uses the name Arkham for the town that he writes about frequently in the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh, he also uses Miskatonic University, which is actually based on Bradford College in Haverhill, Mass., um, so he writes about Miskatonic University on several occasions, including in the Dunwich Horror, which is a story of his in 1929. Um, but it's also featured in At the Mountains of Madness, The Shadow Out of Time, and it's famous for its collection of occult terms and, ex or, excuse me, occult tomes and an eccentric staff. Um, so he uses this very frequently and it's thought to be this, this school that has these secret connections with the occult arts. However, Bradford College is a very real place. It is a school that was established in 1803 and was in operation until 2000. It was a finishing school for women, even though Miskatonic was an all-male school in the Lovecraft mythos. And the original building still stands and holds a Bible school today. Um, <laughs> so I don't know about you guys, but I wonder <laughs> if they really, like know the history right. of like, the usage. <laughs> I probably think they're cleansing it. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Miskatonic is a real place. Um, also, you may have heard, if you are a Lovecraft fan, or read, I guess, of Arkham Asylum. Now, many of you who are Batman fans will immediately recognize that, but that actually comes from Lovecraft, so it does not come originally from Batman. 
Um, sorry to burst your DC bubble. But uh, basically, he writes in The Thing on the Doorstep, and I, I use this excerpt from The Thing on the Doorstep to illustrate this because The Thing on the Doorstep has another inspiration location here in Salem. He writes, It is true that I have sent six bullets through, through the head of my best friend, and yet I hope to show by this statement that I am not his murderer. At first I shall be called a madman, madder than the man I shot in his cell at the Arkham Sanitarium, which is actually a real place, the Danvers State Asylum in Danvers, Massachusetts, which is also, well, at least the main building is still standing today, called the Kirkbride Building, and the other buildings have been rebuilt and are now, can anyone guess it? Really cool haunted Condos. spaces condos. that you can live in. Yes. <laughs> so yes, uh, they are also condos. And what's, what's interesting to me too is if you look at aerial photographs of Danvers State uh, Asylum for how it originally was, and I think it ran up until the 90s. So this place was actually open up until the 90s, this uh, large mental institution. And when it was closed down, it was abandoned for several years, and then they built the condos. When they built those, how I'm so sorry, I need to stop right now, because there is just an intense cat cuddle happening. <laughs> um, Look how big his eyes are dilated so right now, too. A- Amber has a large, fluffy orange cat named Rusty, and uh, he is in her arms right now just chilling and listening to me talk about Asylum, and it's really cool. He's, he's pretty excited to hear about gothic literature. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but Danvers State, uh, the aerial photographs, if you look at that today, you will actually see that where they built the buildings are in the same footprints of where the original buildings were. So, I mean, I don't know if anybody has a no-no switch for don't move there if you don't want your house to be haunted, but I would say that your no-no switch should probably be beeping to all hell right now. So, um, (laughs) obviously not a great idea. So if you're looking for, again, another cool haunted condo. Yeah, it's right near 128. So again, commute favorable and (laughs) ghost when you get home. (laughs) Commute favorable to your deathbed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but the cemetery is actually still there. So you can see the Kirkbride building, and there is also a cemetery on the property where several of the patients are buried. Um, some of them have names, some of them don't, but you can still go see that today. Um, but, of course, this was the setting for Arkham Asylum and many, 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 many Lovecraft uh, short stories. I may be mistaken, but is, isn't is that where they filmed Session 9 also? It is, yes. They filmed Session 9 there as well, which is a really creepy horror movie but it, they built they filmed it there when it was still abandoned but they made it look like a construction site because the the site was still abandoned but yes uh you are a fan of session nine that was actually filmed in the original buildings of the danvers state asylum uh so on back to the note of the thing on the doorstep there's another home in salem actually that was used as inspiration for the thing on the doorstep so the thing on the doorstep is uh, where the main character, Daniel Upton, resides in the old Crown and Shield house. And he explains that he has killed his best friend, Edward Derby. Of course, another n- nod to a Salem name, Derby. Uh, after Edward tells him of these strange occult rituals to the old gods that were taking place at Miskatonic University, which is what I was just talking about. And he believes that his wife, Azanath, has been possessed by the spirit of her father, who he believes to be a wizard that is in cahoots with the old gods and using these sort of occult practices um so of course when he does shoot his friend he shoots him when he's in his cell at the arkham sanitarium and he himself ends up in arkham at the end um but it's based in the old crown and shield house 
which is actually the Crown and Shield Bentley House. So it is an old yellowish house on the corner of Essex Street and Hawthorne Boulevard. And it was built for Captain John Crown and Shield, who built it between 1727 and 1730. Subsequently lived in by four generations of Crown and Shields, and it still stands today. So again, just more of this inspiration. We see Lovecraft coming to Salem and sort of having this, like, love affair with Salem and all its creepiness. He wrote expressly about the witch trials and his interest in the Salem witch trials um, in other writings. And he even wrote about the home of one of the judges, Jonathan Corwin. He has a uh, story, obviously, or series called Dreams in the Witch House. And in that one, it's really interesting because he actually writes... Uh, nor was any spot in that city more steeped in macabre memory than the gable room which harbored him, for it was the house and this room which had likewise harbored old Keziah Mason, whose flight from Sh Salem jail at the last no one was ever able to explain. So he's obviously not putting Judge Corwin in the house, but he is relating that back to that sort of witch hysteria in that time period. Um, Dreams in the Witch House, however, was written in 1933. So it's set firmly in his Cthulhu mythos, um, but the narrative couches this the narrator's otherworldly discoveries in the framework of the Salem witch hysteria as young Walter Gilman rooms in a former witch's house and experiences a series of dreams that may not be dreams at all. Luckily for those looking to share that experience, of course, you can visit the very real Salem witch house, which is a museum today. So they are, I believe they're in their winter hours now, but you can go on their website and check that out. So you can actually visit that place today and see not only an actual site tied to the Salem Witchcraft Trials, because it is the only known building in Salem with any direct ties to the Witchcraft Trials, um, but you can also walk in the rooms that H.P. Lovecraft himself most likely walked in. I don't know that he was ever in the house, but my estimation is that he was certainly standing outside pondering all of the gables that he talks about in Dreams in the Witch House. Um, so moving back then, obviously you can see that Salem has quite the past with Gothic literature. And, I, you know, I was trying to fit that all in in a timely manner so I could actually talk to my guests. But of course, like, like many of you know, I like to revisit things later on. Uh, so on that note, Salem's Gothic literary past also has a present and a future. So obviously I talked to you guys about what you do with Fun Dead, and I have to ask now, what is your special announcement that you are going to tell the people for your next project? <laughs> My special announcement that I am so excited about is that our next anthology is going to be a gothic anthology. Ooh. Of course. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um... I know you guys have talked about gothic literature in the past, obviously at the Women in Horror event. Um, what are some of your favorite gothic horror stories? What about you, Lori? <laughs> well, you know, I have to say I didn't have a ton of experience from what I've considered gothic literature, but then tonight we were talking about it before we started recording, and a lot of things that I was like, that's gothic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I knew Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which I have read, and I knew Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I have read. Mm -hmm. Those are, are gothics. But then what else were we talking about that I was like, that's a gothic? The Wuthering Heights. 
Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And then I even didn't I didn't think that when you said the House of Seven Gables, I was like, that's a goth. But I guess it is a gothic. I mean, there's so much spookiness in my life that sometimes like a story that I would just consider just melts together. Like, goth a, his, like a historic Hashtag fiction. Goth life. Right. Yeah, hashtag that, something goth that I would life. just consider like historic <laughs> sort of inspired fiction or sort of dramatic in, historic inspired fiction is actually gothic literature. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. didn't realize. Ta-da. It. Ta-da. So uh, what about you, Amber? What are some of your favorites? And sort of, okay, so for people who don't know, I'm sure you know, um, what exactly classifies gothic literature? What Um, qualifies that? When I'm describing it, I usually describe it as elegance and beauty meets horror. Um, But a lot of the major themes are you have this inherently good main character or an almost virginal main character uh, who finds themselves in a position of darkness where there is an insane character who is antagonizing them or there is a ghost that is seemingly haunting them. Um, Oftentimes in classic Gothic literature, you see a young woman who has married a widower and moves into his house only to be haunted by his dead wife. Hmm. Um, And that's a, a, a standard theme that you see frequently in both like traditional Gothic horror um, all the way through the pulp gothic resurgence of the 1960s. Um, oh, I didn't know there was a pulp gothic resurgence. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, tell me more. <laughs> um, so around the 60s, when the drugstore romance became a thing, gothic romance suddenly took off. And um, that's kind of where you get this art style of woman running from house. Yes. yes. Woman <laughs> running from yeah, house. Yeah, I know. It sounds hilarious. <laughs> I'm actually planning a tattoo of a woman running from a house. Um, Sweet. <laughs> but um, on those 1960s book covers, when they would re-release older gothic novels or when a new author like Phyllis A. Whitney or Victoria Holt uh, would release a book, it would often be set in these big, eerie old castles or Victorian mansions, and it would be nighttime and you have this gorgeous scape of the house in the background and then you have a young woman in her nightgown running away from the house with terror yeah. on her face with, with boobs hanging out and clothing falling off and yeah so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so i guess you can expect from any exactly. Yeah. exactly um so i mean just look up any 1960s gothic romance and, <laughs> and there it is you'll know exactly what i'm talking boobs about and all. Um, so okay With the new anthology, then, is this going to be primarily Salem-focused again, or is it going to be... What do you think? It's it's going to be much more broad. Um, I, I decided to take a step away from Salem for a little bit, even though I love it so, so much. So much, in fact, that in the last year we released three Salem anthologies. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love it a lot. Um, we wanted to give the writers a chance to move away from Salem because we wanted to open up their world a little bit and make sure that they were able to write about what they wanted to write about. Um, I have been told by a couple of people what their ideas are for their submission. Um, So I'm really looking forward to seeing different locales. Um, And what I'm really, really excited about with this anthology is we're going for non-traditional main characters um, in the story instead of having your traditional straight, white, virginal female or (laughs) dark, brooding, white male, uh, we want to see some lesbian main characters. We want to see some people of color in the the main character point of view. 
Um, so I'm pretty excited about seeing where we take it. It's kind of like I, I want to breathe life into the gothic genre by bringing it into contemporary storytelling. That's awesome. I mean, and especially I think at this particular moment, it's so important to bring new voices and to, to be inclusive in the way that you're saying. I think that this is a really important time to do that. Um, and especially with horror, because there are so many things that are totally horrific that have been happening and, and we, I know we can't, we can't, get it, but, um, you should have seen the look on my face. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of the perfect time to sort of bring that world forward in a way that's going to not only make an impact, but continue this tradition of Gothic writing and, you know, give a new voice to it. And that's what I love so much about what you guys do is that you're constantly thinking about how to continue to make these things relevant. And it's just, it's incredible and it's great. And I love everything about it. And I just can't Thank wait. Thank you. Um, I, I was asking if it's going to be New England centric because as when you were describing sort of this, I guess, uh, Big old familiar tropes in uh, gothic horror, mm-hmm. all I could think about was, oh my God, is somebody going to write a story about Hammond Castle? Because yeah. I just can't. Oh, no, we still <laughs> want the big, we want the big old spooky houses for sure. So. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Big spooky houses, cemeteries, monasteries. Yeah, I was oh, toying gosh. around with the idea of, of maybe setting something in Newport in one of those Ooh. lovely, tiny, little summer cottages. Tiny, little Tiny, little, little massive <laughs> mansions that are oh, marble, marble covered yeah. cottages. Yeah. Uh, yeah that if there ever was epic. a giant fancy house that probably Call has some a gilded history. cottage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a, gilded, a gilded probably, age cottage. Probably. Mm-hmm. I feel or, like they'd be a fun setting. Also, the Crane Estate. I mean, no, God. No, I mean, there's no, already no, been, like, flowers sure. in the attic set there, yeah. but Jesus. So Oh, like. absolutely. I mean, there are so many locations, especially because New England is the literal birth of our country. Right. That's where you get a lot of these old buildings. Um, but, you know, don't shy away from Victorian mansions and cemeteries. Those are okay to use, too. And setting your story in a far-off land, that's acceptable as well. Yeah. Um, my uh, first novel, Walls of Ash, you actually end up in India because the family works in the East India Trading Company. Um, so things to take into consideration when you're writing. Um, and of course, um, to talk a little bit about Kristen, we're actually going to have her on our Facebook Live tonight, which we plan to post onto the Facebook afterwards. Which won't be tonight when right. she posts this it's podcast. true. <laughs> so for those of you listening, that will have already happened. Uh, <laughs> but you can go on our still, Facebook You can watch what was live and now is recorded. Um, and, and we're going to discuss historical research for fiction writers and uh, how that pertains to gothic writing. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be really fun. So go look for that if you want more of this discussion of historical themes and big spooky castles and all of that. That's awesome. All right. Well, I would like to thank you both for joining me. I'm, uh, that's all I've got for all of you tonight because obviously I need to go get ready to do this awesome live event with Fun Woo-hoo. Dead. So thank you for having me to do that because well, it's going to be really fun. Thank you for having us to um, do this. So if any of you, obviously, if you're listening to this right now, you will not have caught the actual live event, but you can go to Fun Dead's pay, uh, Facebook page and see that. And, of course, as always, if you do have any questions, please post them in the link on the Facebook when I post this episode. Um, if you have anything that you would like to hear more about, say if you have any questions about the gothic horror that we've talked about tonight, because I kind of just 
bulldoze through that to be able to get everything into the episode and actually talk to Funded. Um, please leave those questions and check out Funded Publications. I mean, you know, you all listen to my podcast, but uh, I work with some really amazing people here in Salem, Funded being one of them. Um, and it's just a sort of like coalition of people that are just bringing spooky back, I guess. <laughs> Instead of like bringing sexy back, it's bringing spooky back. Hey, you can be both. Yeah, that's true. Um, I was actually, I was also going to say, if any of you happen to be writers, we'll be accepting submissions for this gothic anthology. Um, so look for the post for that. We're going to start opening it up in January. Ooh, so yeah, so if any of you are writers, uh, definitely submit to Fundead, look for that deadline, and Write me a story about Hammond Castle. Thank you. Um, so, as always, it was fun hanging out with you guys, talking about some gothic literature and talking about some really new, exciting things going on in here, here in Salem and just sort of continuing our tradition of being the forefront of spookiness. Um, again, thank you, Amber and Laurie, for joining me, uh, as us. always. Thanks for having us. And uh, this is me signing off. So, as always, have a strange life. <laughs>